tell me who you are? I am Angela and Carol. I'm an artist, archivist. I'm a writer. I illustrate. I uh, animated in another life. I teach. I'm an internal student. Just uh, out here trying to win. <laughs> Have other folks win too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we were having our conversation about the great and legendary Flying Lotus, you were telling me that you had, you were uh, out in Oakland for some time. Uh, are you from California? Nah, I'm from out here, from PG, and was in the Bay Area for graduate school at UC Santa Cruz, and then after after grad school, just needed needed that culture, you know, um, mm-hmm. was missing. California is a very diverse state, but it's um, black populations are in like pockets. Like it's um, you kind of miss that, you know, when you leave the East Coast, how diverse and how how African <laughs> the East Coast is, you know, mm-hmm. um, on the West Coast. You know, obviously, it's just a, a whole nother vibe. But but I was like, yo, I need to I need to get to Oakland. <laughs> so as soon as I graduated, uh, um I like went and was there for like five or six years or something and, you know, just built with a lot of really beautiful, beautiful energy there and was able to do, you know, um, some really good work while I was there too. And at that time I was concentrating on film and documentary was, um, was what was called for, you know, what community needed. Uh, so I was, so that's what I was doing that. I was doing that out there. We'll get back to UC Santa Cruz and the West coast in a moment. Tell me what it was like uh, growing up in PG for you. Yeah, PG was peace. Um, parents, very strict. My parents were very devout, but my father, you know, he's, he was an artist. He um, was a jazz musician, and he and he just was, and still is, you know, just very creative. He um, built cars and, you know, with fish and with little sculptures and his his brother was a painter um like a really amazing oil painter my uncle neil and he used to illustrate for um for the fat albert comic books that used to come out there was always a lot of music in the house my mother was a um she taught english for a short while and but then after that was you know doing other stuff and but um because my you know my father was pretty well read and my mother was well read as well so so the library was just nice you know and because they were strict and their library was ill (laughs) you know I just (laughs) it was like choose a book you know like sit down and choose a book so I read and my um my sister you know kind of taught me how to read by uh potty train me by teaching me how to read so she would read to me you know these old school books uh the people who could fly you know, that was one of my favorites for a minute, and she would read to me. So I learned how to read at a very young age. You know, we didn't have a lot of other children's books, per se. It was like, you know, read what's here, you know? So I was reading, like, Roots and, you know, Toni Morrison, Sula, and, like, Malcolm X autobiography, and just, you know, like, a lot of stuff, like, in elementary school, you know? So I was, all of that founded my consciousness, you know, as well as just a really clear understanding about spirit and spiritual identity and God and all of these things and the importance of believing in something larger than yourself and doing work that is not solely centered on yourself, you know, the sort of burden of of moving in an Ubuntu kind of, you know, consideration we are, you know what I'm saying? I am because we are like that. Mm-hmm. That was always really, um, really ingrained in me at a very young age, you know, the importance of family, the importance of community. Uh, the importance of spirit connection. That kind of feeds into um, the second question that I was going to ask. 
if you had like an eye for critique and and documenting in high school but it seems like it started at a much earlier age like you said uh your sister teaching you uh how to read while potty training i mean first you know that's that's a lot of multitasking for a small yeah. child to uh to, <laughs> right. to, to to work with but you seem to have gotten the hang of it but i guess right. <laughs> but even with um growing up it just sounds like like you said, there wasn't a lot of children's books per se, but the stuff that you were reading, it was putting you, whoops, sorry, I hit my mic, uh, but it was putting you in a position to be exposed to books and literature that in itself was critical, but at the same time, you're, you're reading things that a lot of uh, critical theory is based off of. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a... There's a blessing in that, right? In that, um, you know, I'm I'm older, right? I'm in my mid 30s now, but my parents are older, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. early 70s, late 60s, and so they they grew up in segregated America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and really didn't experience a kind of full integration until they were adults, like grown, grown, married children. I don't even know that they were even founding it as <clears throat> as critical race theory at that time or post-colonial theory, right? Even though that's what a lot of those texts were. They had, they just had a consciousness, you know what I'm saying, about who we are and the importance of knowing who we are because they had lived through that fight, you know what I'm saying, to see for people of color to be recognized as human, feel me, like for, for black experience and black creative genius to be seen and recognized as valid, you know, and um, as worthy of consideration. Their library reflected their interest and in turn, you know, I was able to tune in, but honestly, I don't consider myself a critic, you know, like, I think that that's a really colonial term, you know, and the history of like a, like a critic is steeped in this elitism, you know, that I have always felt very uncomfortable in, um, which is why I kind of prefer the term artist archivist, but definitely the way that I look at work, the way that I consider, um, you know, the the works and the artists that I had the opportunity to, to write about is certainly in a, with a context, a deep context and a deep understanding of history and a deep understanding of a lot of the scholarship that founds the histories that I am uh, interested in and that, that found my understanding, which is African diasporic histories, right? And um, so, yeah, definitely I'm pulling from from a lot of, you know, the giants that walked before us for me, like the, you know, the Baldwins and the Morrisons and the, because how can you not? Their work is feeding into the, the Audre Lords and feeding into the Alice Walkers and feeding into, you know, later on that the Bell Hooks and the Angela Davises, you know, like that kind of um, cross, cross-pollination, you know, of, of genius, you know, all working towards building a canon that is very new right? Building a canon that didn't exist in their generation. I, f- I feel similarly with, um, with podcasting. It's, you know, I've been doing this for about five years now. And one thing that I just always come back to is at the end of the day, all I'm really trying to do is tell the stories of the, the mm-hmm. black people living in Baltimore. Um, because if not me, then who is going to and it might not be somebody that looks like me who ends up telling that story and they might leave something out or they might you know try to put something uh, out of context so that 
while the story is being told, it uh, you know the end product is something different than what's intended. Uh, so I definitely feel you on everything uh, that you're saying. I mean, it's it's just really really amazing to hear you uh, talk about it because you speak with such passion about it, and I can tell that this is something that you're like for better or for worse, you're just gonna do this for for the rest of your days. Yeah, I mean, and I and I appreciate you know spending time with you. And I remember when this was just a concept. So you know, like big ups for just you mm-hmm, you moving in your visions. Not for real though. Like I mean, because that's really what the work is calling for. And I was building with a friend earlier talking about you know I hope that folks are taking this time, you know, in this you know in this kind of quarantine and during this really dark period um, to also see the light. You know, see the silver lining. And that is like, do you have time to think about? you know, the ashe that you have to give the world, right? Like what 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 brings you joy and what what do you think that you can do, you know, in the world? And I hope so. I hope that this that the work I'm doing right now um has impact. I hope that it is a legacy because again it's not I'm I'm not really uh I'm not good about promoting the you know, the present thing. I'm not good at really promoting myself. I'm I don't I don't really move that way. I'm not interested in that. But I do wanna make sure that there's something that exists beyond me, particularly now and the folks that I'm focusing on now, which is a lot of our elders, that their work is written about and contextualized in a way that it's that is deserving, you know, that they that many of them have not received in their lifetimes yet and many of them are later in their lives, sixties, seventies, eighties, some of them, right? And and are just now really getting the kind of recognition that they deserve. And these are people with like prolific bodies of work. Mm-hmm. Me? I feel like we have covered so much ground and I haven't even gotten like through half of my questions, so I really do <laughs> appreciate you giving me such robust answers. So you grew up in just a very culturally rich household, and from your sister to your parents to uncles and aunts, you were just surrounded with creativity and, like you said, uh, abstraction. Um, when you finished high school, did you, did you go to high school in uh, PG as well? Yep, went to Bowie, old school. I don't even remember the mascot. I like black, <laughs> the Bulldogs. It was pretty diverse, very black. You know, still have a lot of best friends mm-hmm. from there. It was It was a rounded education. I had a, a few teachers who showed me the importance of, of having a rounded uh, education, of knowing history. And at that time, I was deep into writing. I was a, a poet. Somebody had put me on to Amiri Baraka, and I was in, like, middle school um it was a it was a a teacher miss allison miss allison what was her last name i can't remember but she had put me on to a mary baraka because i was rapping about something because i had read i read i can't even remember i read something and i was mad and she was like don't be mad just you know but like read more like this is good and like if you know about this person then you know learn about this person so i was like bet and uh I just remembered being so, I don't know, just so moved. And I was like, yo, like, I'm just, I'm just going to be a poet out here. Like, I'm just, fuck everything else. Like, I'm just going to (laughs) write, you know, and be a poet. And at that time, you know, like spoken word was, was really popular. And this is before spoken word was like competitive. You feel me? Like it was, it wasn't like slam. It wasn't about competing for applause. It was just about showcasing like what's, inside you and then having people respond to that yeah so it felt uh 
like no shade to you know to slam culture but it just it was just honest and earnest and it just felt like a really healthy place to be vulnerable you know like it was like this is a safe space where like you don't have to be a performer like you can just share you know what's in your spirit what's on your heart for sure but then I realized that there was a a really clear distinction a really clear correlation rather between you know language you know the written word and like visual language you know and uh I would look at my uncle's art and I was um, watching a lot of films because, again, my parents are very strict, so I wasn't going out very often. I was, um, it was, it was like home and school and church, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, you know, that was the vibe. And so being at home for, you know, for long periods of time meant, you know, video games and books mm-hmm. and, you know, time to write and, and a lot of music because my father had the ill vinyl collection. So I would just sneak <laughs> so good, yo. And just, I would just sneak and listen to stuff, sneak and listen to Richard Pryor work. But what was, <laughs> I feel like I forgot the question. Um, I was just talking about you going to high school. You said you had went to Bowie High School. You grew up in the East Coast in a very culturally significant area, which is the DMV. And um, we're going to talk about the area's cultural significance in a bit. But UC Davis, I'm sorry, not UC Davis, UC uh, Santa Cruz, University of California, you know, 3,000 miles away, it seems like such a stark departure uh, from the DMV area and what you knew and and loved. So can you tell me about your journey from Bowie High School to UC Santa Cruz? Because did you go there for undergrad as well or just graduate school? Yeah, just, uh, just graduate school. For undergrad, I was at UMBC. And, um, you know, was super inspired by Herbowski and that whole vibe. And for one year I was at Coppin because uh, it was random. Like I was, I, when I was in high school, I I just knew that I was going to Pratt, <laughs> you know, like I just knew that I was going to NYU. And so I was like, yo, that's, that's the mission, you know, going to NYU. So I applied and I got in. And um, I got into prep, and then I told my my parents, like, you know, you want to pack me up? Like, <laughs> you know, I had this whole plan, like, you know, like, when when are we leaving, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And they were like, nah, like, you're not, you're not going to New York. You know, it's too far, and really? you don't have that much family out there. Yes, I was so hurt at the time, because I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And But it was also very expensive, you know, so it was even more than the, you know, the fear of me being so far away was like out of state tuition, like there's a whole vibe. And it's not, I wasn't, I didn't have like full ride scholarships mm-hmm. or anything at that time. So it was like, nah, you're going to, you know, you're going to stay local. But I hadn't applied to any other <laughs> schools, you know, and I had just seen this random like thing for Coppin. Like I didn't even know where it was. I have family here in Baltimore, but Coppin at that time was, an even smaller school than it is now. There hadn't been all of the, you know, all of the construction, the adding on of things. You know, there was like one dorm. And I think the year that I got there, they had built the second dorm. Feel me? Like it was very small, very small school. And, uh, but I was there for a year and I was so grateful, you know, for that, for that experience. Um, Because being there, I was able to build with, with other writers and other poets and joined a collective of writers called Poetry for the People that was led by, the brilliant Olu Butterfly and um, had other members like, you know, Fifth L, Femi Dryfish and 
Native Son, David Ross, and um, Jessica Third Isis, and Akil Maizan, like just, these are legends, legendary poets in Baltimore who have just done a lot to continue the work of spoken word and of just writing, period, you know, the importance of language. Many of them are educators as well who have dedicated a lot of their time and energy towards making sure that children in Baltimore City have the tools to express themselves, tell their stories, you know, so it was beautiful to build with those with those brothers and sisters. And so the whole time that I was in Baltimore, we were writing, we were performing. I was in a little collective with the sister Michelle Nelson, Love the Poet, uh, and another sister named Daniela Misha Fuller, brilliant playwright and writer. Um, we, we were called CSC Trilogy. <laughs> it was two Capricorns and a Sagittarius because they were both Capricorns and I was a Sagittarius. <laughs> we would write these ill, like, group poems. And again, this is before the whole slam thing. So we was really, we were really doing some cool, some cool stuff. And we, and we would include, at that time I was playing bass. And um, we would do these performances at, um, at all of these little venues, many of which don't involve, you know, don't exist anymore in mm-hmm. Baltimore, which is crazy. And, and so poetry was a big, was a big thing for me at that time. And then after Coppin, I went to UMBC because Coppin didn't have an animation or film major. They didn't have really a, a really deep art department at that time. And they didn't have a lot of funding for a lot of things. And so I, uh, transferred to UMBC and was there for the last, you know, three years of, um, of undergrad focusing on I was focusing on a lot I was um, I was a visual arts major with with a concentration in animation and I was also studying ancient studies um, with a concentration in archaeology because I wanted to create at that time virtual worlds that remade Nubia as like virtual landscapes like it was a whole thing and at that time the animation department at UMBC was very deep into 3D so we were learning like Maya and uh, Blender was a very new thing, like I, like it was kind of it was hella glitchy and like beta, but everything was like 3D Max and <laughs> 3D Max and Maya, and I wanted to do this thing, but the ancient studies department was so um, just very Eurocentric. Like I would I would write essays and reference stuff like you know Kemet and Nubia and you know because I'm I'm pulling from the lexicon of like Ivan Van Sarma and you know William Chancellor and freaking you know like I'm. Um, check on to Diop and like, you know, and they're looking at me like, you know, cause I'm, I'm studying and looking for support in studying African antiquity. But at that time, the ancient studies department was only focused on the Greeks and the Romans. And if you didn't focus on the Greeks or the Romans and you wanted to focus on Africa, then they considered you an Egyptologist. They would not go beyond Egypt, right? The violence of that, the erasure of history and how that is perpetuated in institutions. And eventually I just had to drop the ancient studies because uh, it was violent. I have to learn your histories, but you won't allow me and won't support me in trying to learn my own. They couldn't teach me what they didn't know. So then I went to, I graduated and went to graduate school at UC Santa Cruz because because I just, I wanted that freedom. And I had applied to NYU again, went and visited and it was like, do I want gray and do I want winners? And, uh, but then I, you know, but then yeah. I went to Santa Cruz to visit, and I was like, "Yo, the campus is in the middle of a, a redwood forest." Feel me? The redwood trees have been here as long as the dinosaurs. You know, like the energy of that is profound and profoundly healing and, and clarifying. And honestly, I feel like that spot is like a, 
is like a magnet. Like there's just a lot of really brilliant energies that end up there. At that time, Angela Davis was a professor there in the History of Consciousness program, and um, many other folks were doing extraordinary works there at that time, and many of them are still there. Angela Davis has since retired. But, you know, just to be there um, while there were so many, while there was just a lot of buzz uh, and a lot of support for, like, studies in post-colonial theory and writing and support for you to do projects that made you think about history in, in, in new ways, right? A kind of decolonial model of thinking about and considering history. And that, you know, I just, I got turned on to a lot of theory that I wasn't familiar with prior to that, a lot of like European theory, you know, I got turned on to like Foucault and turned on to Derrida and turned on to Baudrillard and turned on to, you know, just a lot of stuff that I wasn't, familiar with you know um that was contextualizing the things that i had been thinking about as far as like um history and as far as um surveillance and as far as like the violence that's you know perpetually sort of inflicted on people of color particularly people who are seen as a threat you know people who are seen as intelligent people who are seen as people who are you know that, that you know the entities that perpetuate these systems have reason to fear you know or create reasonings for why they should be feared you know which is largely just because they can't be controlled right, right. you know because um, they're doing work to to again make us consider what history is and that was a that was a those were beautiful that was that was a beautiful time and it was still a very white institutions but and most are but i think what was powerful about it is that it um there were so many professors like Derek Murray and Lewis Watts and um Jennifer Gonzalez and you know just so many amazing minds Shetty Moraga would teach there every so often you know just so many amazing minds that were in the region and would come and lecture and were or were lecturing there at the time that's amazing is it fair to say that you got a lot more out of it despite it being on the west coast and away from that historically uh, black community i think i was challenged in a different way and pushed beyond my beyond my comfort zone and that you begin to see that the world you know I, I, like I, I think about this a lot right like there's a reason why you know chairman fred hampton was killed right like it wasn't that he was mobilizing or just mobilizing black people right um it wasn't just that he was intelligent it was that he was bridging he was creating bridges between white appalachian workers and white feminists and black liberation fighters and black women, Asian movements and Latinx movements, um, and at that time, Chicana movements, bringing everyone together to say, in the words of Audre Lorde, you know, there's no hierarchy of oppressions. I don't think that I fully understood that mm -hmm. um, until I was on the West Coast, because the East Coast is very binary. We are conditioned in a very binary way, and particularly Baltimore is still a very segregated city, right? The East, the East Coast is segregated in a way. The West Coast is segregated, too, feel me, but there seems to be more, I don't know, I need to think about that more, but I, I feel like the, I my notions of community were expanded um, when I was there, you know, because I saw and was in solidarity with and working in solidarity with so many, so many other people who, um, who were doing their work, you know, for their communities, but also were standing in, a, in alliance with um, the works of the community, the other communities.
when you're living in a sort of segregated space, it's difficult to have those sorts of alliances. And it's difficult to sort of even have a, you know, even know what what that means, you know, how and how that functions, right? And how that how that kind of mobilizing is is sustained. So once you finished up your time at UC Santa Cruz, you came back to the East Coast, and I take it that's where you've uh, been ever since, right? My well, no. So I uh, finished up my time in Santa Cruz, and then I was in Oakland for. Oh yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, it was peace. I was. Um, it was a you know it was it was a legit a beautiful struggle. Um, I was working as a freelance. Uh, filmmaker, documentarian, and also teaching in after-school programs, teaching film, teaching animation, and, um, you know, living with and, and working alongside a lot of folks who were doing extraordinary works around um, trying to sustain the Black, uh, what what they were trying to create was a Black arts district in Oakland that also uh included, you know, and memorialized certain, uh, like, houses and movements like the Black Panther Party and um, the UNIA. And um, and it was, just, yeah, it was just, it was a beautiful moment. I was able to, I was commissioned to do a film for um, for Angela Davis on her retirement called, um, what was that drink called? Radical Pedagogy, I think is what. Um, I hate the film now, <laughs> but <laughs> at the time I felt really good about it. Uh, it was I did like a stop motion of Angela, and it was mostly interviews with with colleagues and peers that were talking about the importance of her work. But it was also juxtaposed with uh, the kind of again the violence of erasure of history, and that we would interview people on the street, you know, in Berkeley, and just ask like, "Who is Angela Davis? Like, do you know who Angela Davis is?" and it was kind of astounding that across the board, most of you know, most of the people did not know who she was, did not know the works that she had done, and so it was like juxtaposing, um, you know, the people on the street and their random responses with, with, uh, with peers of um, Professor Davis and, and 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 her former students, which was really beautiful. And then Oscar Grant was killed in 2010. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a lot of mobilizing in Oakland around that because, you know, it was on the BART, which is like the metro out there. And it was such a brutal, you know, death that so many people observed, you know, because they were on the BART when he got pulled off at Fruitville Station, which is in East Oakland. And he got pulled off the BART and was just killed. So it, when, uh, when that happened there was, you know, there was a call to try and just get to the root of, like, why it happened, but also a lot of, to to focus on a lot of the people that were doing organizing work at that time as well to end police violence, right? Because Oscar Grant was not the first, there were many others who had been killed and harassed at the hands of unnecessary police brutality. And so I worked on a film called Operation Small Acts with several brothers, J.R. Valray and Adimu Madyun, and that was that was powerful, and it went on, and I, I think it influenced a lot of films that came after it, or that focused on Oscar Grant, like Fruitvale Station. And then my mother got really sick, so when she got sick, I moved back to to Maryland and have been here, and have been here since. And 
and I'm grateful for it because the art and you know the art scene in in this region is just so robust and uh and so clear and uh and so distinct you know what I mean like nothing you know Oakland has its own vibe Baltimore has it legit has its own vibe you know I want to continue in that vein and talk about that Maryland's cultural history it's not really talked about in national conversations so for mm. you since you've been back what's the journey been like exploring this area's art and and being able to surround yourself with those contemporaries and has anything surprised you when i moved back into the city i was surprised that there wasn't more coverage of a lot of the of the emerging artists that were here that weren't that weren't white i was surprised that there wasn't kind of like clear and consistent articulation and in that the art scene was was pretty siloed. Black Baltimore was kind of doing its thing and not even at the fringes, right? They were just living doing their thing. But then when you looked at like a Baltimore magazine or you looked at a city paper, if there was a black writer on the staff, then you would hear about black folks, you know, like you would see that Baltimore actually had the culture that was, you know, that is Baltimore was presented largely by people of color. But if there wasn't, you know, a consistent sort of writer of color on the staff or if the if the folks on the staff just didn't know about or didn't care to you know dig into the black cultural production that was happening in the city then it would then it was just invisible and um and that surprised me and uh I went to a performance that was at I think it was at current gallery what was what used to be current gallery and um and it was, you know, it was this performance that I felt was really problematic. Like it was, uh, there were, it was this collective of, 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 of white women who were in, were appropriating a lot of like black dance traditions, but not contextualizing, right? Like it was, it was just performative kind of for the sake of being performative and it was empty. And I was having in conversation about it, like, yo, like, what is this? And I was talking to a friend and she was like, yo, like you should, you should write about this. It was actually uh, Ada, Ada Pinkston of Lab mm-hmm. Bodies, and she, you should write about this, you know, because I've never heard, you know, a perspective like that about the da-da-da, and I was like, ah. And at first I was like, nah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a critic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in, it's just, you know, it's an opinion kind of thing. But I realized that there's there wasn't that kind of perspective, right? It was like, uh, and the importance of that, the importance of having diverging perspectives you know what i'm saying like uh that challenged people to think about the works that were on display and to think about what we consume you know to think about what comes and then ends up sort of representing uh an aesthetic from baltimore you know what i'm saying it's like how do you how do you have publications that are representing a baltimore aesthetic but ain't no black artist presented you know ain't no latinx artist presented like how, how does that work you know where you know um it's a fallacy right it's a farce <laughs> you know how do we correct that and you correct it by doing what you can do, right? You know, start where you uh, start where you are, do what you can. So after that, I started writing more consistently, um, largely with uh, with Be More Art and with City Paper, and um, when City Paper, you know, still existed, and and I was able to sort of sharpen my teeth in that way and really think about uh, not just and it wasn't even just for me, but it was like wow, like there's so there's so much talent here you know and there's so there's so many narratives um that deserve recognition that deserve to be told 
and you know the importance it's like if you want to break the master or the dominant I hate that word, the master, but you know, if you want to break that dominant narrative, right, or the illusion of the singular narrative, right, then you have to create, you have to contribute to the creation of, of other narratives, right? And for me, it, it was about contributing to the illumination of other narratives, right? Like, y'all know this exists, you know, and do y'all know all the histories, the amazing histories that found, you know, this work? Uh, I want to continue on that. And talk about your reviews. As you've said, you're not a critic. You don't like that word. But you do write reviews. You've written them for Be More Art, as you said, and a lot of other publications. When you're not in review mode or looking at something uh, in the pursuit of writing on it, do you ever allow yourself to like just enjoy it, for lack of a better phrase? Or is it difficult for you to kind of turn off the, the reviewer brain? Not. Nah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I, but again, I don't I don't consume content with the intention of uh, of critiquing it. Right. Meaning that I don't I don't observe content. Yeah. With the intention of like giving a giving an opinion about it or giving a, an assessment about it. Um, I just I love art. You know, I'm fed by art. I consume a lot of art. You know, I watch a lot of films. I watch a lot of animation. I watch a lot of um i read a lot you know i i um i look at a lot of art i i go on a lot of journeys to uh exhibitions and um and openings and uh and festivals that that focus on on art i'm just inspired by it you know it moves me most of the time i'm going just to enjoy a vibe but then often i'll get you know, commissioned to write things, um, which is which is a lot of what's happened in the last maybe three years or so. It's most of the stuff that I've written is because I've been commissioned to write it. So, which has been a blessing because it's like, wow, okay, like my voice resonates. Like that's a that's that's a blessing. I didn't, I um, again because I, I was never doing the work. You know, I was thinking about the present. I was always doing the work, thinking about the future. Right? Like, okay, well, if nobody reads it right now, it'll mm-hmm. be here. You know, God will, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they're, you know, assuming that the internets don't blow up and implode or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, that that these things will, will exist beyond me. Have you ever received pushback from an artist or filmmaker about one of your pieces and one of your reviews? Um, Not so, like, rarely, you know, every once in a while. But, all, you know, it's like nothing is in stone. So if there's ever like a, a thing that needs to, if I uh, write a thing about uh, about an artist or their work and, you know, they're like, hey, and they reach out and it's like, hey, can you change this? Or, you know, and then boom, you know, it gets changed. It gets edited. I'm never, there's no ego around the work. You know, I don't see my word as like, you know, the gold authority. You know, it's just one, you know, one, uh, you know, one drop in the in the greater ocean of understanding that we're trying to found right now. You know, and and uh, so, but you know, every so often there'll be um, a critique. I mean, I think that first that first critique when it was like a legit critique, <laughs> you know, of that of that performance. I got a, I did get a lot of pushback, not directly from the artist, but from community. You know, and it was a kind of anonymous violence, right? It was like 
in the comments being called bitch and in the comments being called who, you know, who is this person? Like, who do they think they are to critique this work kind of thing? And that, you know, I kind of laughed at it because I was like, wow, like it, it made me realize the, uh, the power, you know, I, mean, I knew the power of words, right? But the importance and the power of, of critique, right? Of, of challenging people to think about the works that they're doing and that in the response was a kind of, uh, flag for me to be like, oh, this isn't this isn't done often enough, right? We don't challenge each other enough, and because we don't challenge each other enough, the the initial response is is a violent one, and so that was that was really interesting for me to just be like, oh, okay, this work needs to be done. So, um, so yeah, if I can change uh, something, if we, you know, because again, the goal is to work on behalf of the artist, not in opposition to them. Um, then, you know, if I can change or edit a thing, then I will. Um, but if it's just like a, you critique me and I didn't like it kind of thing, then I don't know. But again, so few of my, so few of the pieces that I create, I, uh, so few of them I, I would put in, in the category of critique. Like, I don't think most of them fall into that, into that, uh, that category. You know, I think a lot of the works are fit more into the canon of like a review, you know, like it is, it is a review and a contextualization of the work from a perspective that is, you know, well-versed in, but still learning, obviously, you know, the histories of, of African creative thought. We're going to start wrapping up here. Uh, final two questions that I always ask my guests. Uh, first, what's coming up next for you? So I'm really, I feel really grateful to be uh, a Saul Zant, uh Innovation Fellow and I'm working on a documentary project that is, again, just a continuation of the work that I've been doing around, uh, again, you know, and I don't want to be too repetitive, but just, you know, illuminating the accomplishments of of the elder black artists that, that precede us um, and making sure that their work is, and they, you know, are recognized as the geniuses that they are, you know, elders like Valerie Maynard and at love and um i henry phillips senior and you know just so many so many others that um like i mean even joy scott you know even though she's received a macarthur genius um award uh so many of her contemporaries remain incredibly obscure and that's or or again are just now beginning to see ex, you know major exhibitions like olisa devane and S.P. Frazier, Short or Cherry, you know, these are folks that have been making works for, you know, the last 30, 40 years, feel me? So I'm excited to be, to be working on, to be working on that and also just, you know, continuing to write and uh, the writing is a little less focused on reviews. Like I'm really trying to figure out how to encourage more young writers to, you know, to, to grab the torch too and to do that work because it's impossible for me to write about every exhibition and I don't really have a desire to do that in this moment. I um I wanna write more critical critical essays and um more scholarship. I wanna get deeper into that. I also wanna uh you know, dig back into animation and into film and all of those things and where can people go if they want to learn more about you and read some of your uh reviews? Um, yeah, so you can, uh, you can check out reviews on Hyperallergic and check out reviews on Black Art in America, um, Be More Art, um, the archives of Art Stop Black, um, the archives of Sugarcane Magazine, um, 
archives of City Paper and Baltimore Magazine. And uh, there's a general archive, too, on uh, on my website, AngelaNCarroll.com, and on my uh, Instagram, which I feel like I should change because it's just my name. Like, it's boring, but it's also, <laughs> I feel like you can find me. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, just Angela underscore N underscore Carol. Gotcha. Okay. Anything else you want to mention that we haven't already gone over? Um, honestly, I feel like we covered a lot, bro. Thank you for the opportunity.